Hello, church. I ain't felt this good since I was six years old. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Um, I'll tell you what, though. Whether you're a Tennessee fan or a Kentucky fan or neither, I hope you can understand how good it feels to have a 27-year-old burden lifted. Here's the thing. If you are, if you are sports literate, then when you pop open ESPN and look at the scores today, then you see a very significant thing happened yesterday. If you're not sports literate, then you pull it up and you see that a 4-7 and seven team beat a 5-6 and six team so that neither one of them goes to a bowl. So what? Right? Here's the deal. It matters what story... We're living inside of. Because I was, I was at the game yesterday. Thanks to my brother-in-law, I was at the football game. And then thanks to Lisa Brooks and family, I was at the, the basketball game last night. So it was one of these days, it was just an epic day in Kentucky sports history. And when I went to bed, it kept getting better because North Carolina lost last night. And so now we're number one in basketball. It's just awesome, awesome, awesome day. For Kentucky sports. None of you care about that. Or some of you do. Most of you don't. Some of you wish I would just forget about it. But here's the deal. It's significant because that's the story that I live in. At least part of me lives in. Probably more of me than should live in it. Lives in that story. And that makes all the difference. And today, what I want us to think about, what I want us to get our minds around, is what it looks like for us. To live inside the story of Jesus. What does it look like for us to make our identity Jesus? And I think, I hope, that when I preach I kind of sound like a broken record because I continue to harp on this idea. I hope I do. I hope this is always what comes out of my mouth when I preach. This idea of living in the story of Jesus. Because it is everything. You've all heard the word, word worldview, right? Worldview is this deal. It's, it is the thoughts that you wake up with without even knowing that you woke up with them. It is what causes you to think about things in the way that you think about them. The fact that you have grown up in the United States, the fact that you have grown up in Goodlettsville, Tennessee, if you have, the fact that you've had the experiences that you've had, all of that has created in your mind a system of thought that shades every single thing that you think. It changes the way you perceive everything you look at. It changes the way you experience every day of life. Worldview. I think a better way of talking about that is this word narrative identity. Might never have heard those together, but you've heard them separately. Narrative means story. Identity means who you are. So it is the story that frames who you are. Your narrative identity. And depending on what sort of stories you associate with, that's going to determine the way you see everything. Everything. Folks, folks who were born after about 1975 until till today even are called postmoderns. And, and what that means is that just naturally, people born in that time period will lend significance to events based on their experience of those events. 
So if a train goes by and Jeff and I see it, then naturally we think that train is significant because we saw it. Or if, if we meet someone and we get to know them, that person is significant because of their relationship to me. That's the natural frame of mind for someone who's a postmodern. Our experience determines the significance of everything that happens. Well, if we read the Bible, what we discover is the exact opposite. We become significant based on what sort of experiences we identify ourselves with. So it's like the exact opposite. Postmoderns are running around living in a constant state of opposite day. You with me? That's kind of what's going on. So it's pretty close to the truth, except for it's turned inside out. And so we have to get our minds around the story of the Bible so we can identify ourselves the way God intends us to identify ourselves. It's the most important thing that can happen in our lives. One of the results of that is that we become biblically literate. And if we're biblically literate, here's what that means. It means when we read the Bible, we think what they thought as we read what they wrote. If we're biblically literate, then we think what they thought as we read what they wrote. And the more we can do that, the more biblically literate we are. The more biblically literate we are, the more accurately we're going to be able to live our lives as followers of Jesus. Because Jesus not only knew the Word of God, Jesus was the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. And there are four stories that course throughout the Scriptures that we have to understand if we're going to be biblically literate. Four stories. The first one is we have to understand the story of creation. We have to know that this glorious, loving, good God created everything that there is just with the words of his mouth. Everything. God spoke and here it was. We look at nothing and we see nothing. God looks at nothing and he thinks, I can make the world out of that. It's the difference between us and God. That's the God that we serve. And when he made everything, he then made human beings to rule over everything that he made. Not just to rule over it, but to care for it. And to teach creation what God is like by living as a picture of that God. That's what human beings are for. And that's what is meant when the Bible says that we're God's images. That's the meaning of that. And if we don't have that story in our mind, then much of what Jesus says, much of what Jesus does is going to make no sense to us. Or at least when we read about it, we will not think what they thought when we read what they wrote. We have to have that story in mind to get it. The next story we have to have in mind is the story of Abraham. Abraham is called to be in relationship with God. God tells him to go and go and go until I tell you to stop. And when you get there, I am going to make you a people more numerous than you could possibly count. That's what Abraham is supposed to do. He gives him a promise without conditions. He doesn't say, if you do this, if you do that, then... He just says, I want to bless you. I want to give you a child. And you're going to have more offspring than you could ever imagine. You're going to be a great nation. Just believe. And so Abraham becomes identified as the father of the faithful ones of God. It's the story of Abraham. The next story that we have to have in mind is the story of Israel. 
And the story of Israel starts with them living in a foreign land, enslaved to the Egyptians, and it ends with them being delivered from slavery, walking across the Red Sea, dry-footed, and coming to a mountain where God gives them a word that forms them into a nation. That's the beginning of the story of Israel. And it moves from blessing and promise almost directly to tragedy as they rebel against the God who's called them together. They begin in their rebellion to ask for a king besides Yahweh, besides their God. They want a king they can look at that wears gold, carries a sword, rides a horse, and beats up people. That's what they want in a king. They don't want a king that's invisible in the sky. They want a king that is right here on earth that can do battle with the other kings that the other nations have. And that's part of their rebellion. And that is another story that we have to have in mind, that God gives them the king they want. He ruins everything. And God gives them the king that he's chosen. And this king, he promises, is going to have a line of kings that will never end. This king is not only going to rule over Israel, but this king's offspring is going to rule over everything that there is. And so all the kings of Israel begin to try to shoulder this cosmic burden of being the king of the universe. None of them ever lives up to it. And they end up in exile, deported from their homeland. And eventually, by God's grace, they get to come back to Israel. But when they come back, the glory of God does not come with them. And so they're in Israel without the glory of God. When we get to the New Testament, Jesus comes on the scene and he is living in light of all these stories. And what happens is that he brings to fruition the promises that we find in creation. He brings to fruition the promises we find in the story of Abraham. He brings to fruition the promises that God makes to Israel. And he brings to fruition the promises that God makes to Israel's king, David. And so in Jesus... Everything God has ever spoken, every story that weaves its way throughout the Old Testament, find its fulfillment in Jesus. That's who he is. He is the culmination of God's story through Israel and through creation for the good of everyone who will put their faith in him. That's who Jesus is. And when we say the word gospel, that's what we mean. Jesus has accomplished everything God has promised. And because of that, we can have life. In him. And the more we can get our minds around these stories, the more biblically literate we're going to be. And the more it's going to begin to form us into who God wants us to be. If you'll turn to the book of Colossians, we're going to take a look at three or four verses that are going to kind of shed some light on this idea. Colossians chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 9 through 14. I'm just going to read it first. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
The first thing that we see is that Paul has heard in verse 9 about these believers at Colossae. And he's heard that they've put their faith in Jesus. He's heard that they believe the gospel, and so they're his brothers and sisters, and he prays for them. And, and if we'll look at his prayer, I think we'll kind of get some insight. It says that he prays that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then he says that this is so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And that looks like bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So what he's praying is that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And he paints a picture of that. They're bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So if we want to walk in a manner of the worthy of the Lord, we have to learn God's Word. We have to learn about Jesus. We're going to increase in this knowledge and then we have to live out what we've learned. So that's what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And it's going to mean we're going to bear fruit. It's going to mean we're going to increase in wisdom and understanding. But we learn about Jesus. We study about Jesus. We fill our minds with Jesus. We identify with the story of Jesus. And as we do that, we begin to bear fruit in every good work. We begin to live out the gospel, in other words. So it's the, word, it's the Word of God that pushes us to live like Jesus. So when we get our minds around the Word, then our lives can begin to reflect the Word. All these participles kind of confuse things. All these I-N-G words, you know, we call them infinitives in English, but in, in Greek they're participles. And the way they work, these in particular, are, they're blank in this translation but it shows the means by which these results can happen. So, by bearing fruit in every good work, by increasing in the knowledge of God, we can become fully pleasing to Him. That's the way it happens. We increase in the knowledge of God, bear good fruit, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's kind of the way that works. Then, Paul has this prayer that they would be strengthened with all power, verse 11, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So what he's praying is that they would be strengthened, they would have this power. He's praying that they would have this strength, they would have this endurance. He's praying they would have this joy, and then he tells them how they can get it. By giving thanks to the Father. So if we want to have the strength to live like Jesus, if we want to have the endurance to live like Jesus, if we want to have the joy to live like Jesus, the way we do that is by giving thanks to the Father. Who would have, who would have thought that thanksgiving is the key to living like Jesus? But here's what happens. When we give thanks, we take our mind off what we want, we take our mind off the small, petty things that we give our attention to most of the time, and we begin to give thanks to the Father for bringing us into the story of Jesus. We begin to give thanks to the Father for making us one of His children. And so our focus now is on this story of Jesus rather than the story of how somebody disappointed me or this story of how things fell apart in my life. 
or this story of how things are kind of difficult right now, or this story of how my stomach hurts, or whatever story we associate with, we take our minds off that, we focus on the story of Jesus, and good things start to happen. We begin to bear fruit. We begin to increase in knowledge. We begin to have perseverance and joy. We find out in Hebrews chapter 12 that it is perseverance and joy and patience that enabled Jesus to endure the cross. So he was able to carry out his mission because of his joy, because of his patience, because of his endurance. And that's the result that we can have if we'll give thanks. But we're not just giving thanks for anything. Paul tells us next what it is we're giving thanks for. He says, we are giving thanks that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In other words, we're giving thanks because God has given us his grace provided through the faithfulness of Jesus to live and then to die obediently on the cross, and then his resurrection secures forever the glory of those who place their faith in him. So as we focus our minds on that, the fact that God's taken us out of this story of despair and sin and rebellion, and he's placed us in this story of hope and faithfulness and redemption, all because of Jesus. When we focus on that, now we can give thanks and begin to show the fruit that God's created us to bear. That, that's the hope that Paul has in mind. That's the prayer that Paul's praying for the folks at Colossae. And that is the aim of our lives. There are so many stories we can choose to identify with. I think God gave us movies so we could kind of see a picture of this. I think God gave us sports so we could see a picture of this every year. Our hopes rise and fall on the performance of 10 or 15 kids. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Listen, last night I sat in Rupp Arena, 26,000 people, and during a timeout, they bring onto the court this 19-year-old kid, and 12 hours before, the only thing anyone would know him as is a receiver who can't catch. I can't tell you how many times this football season I have yelled at the top of my lungs, don't throw it to Matt Rourke. He can't catch. He can't catch. But they walked this guy onto the court because he, we ran out of our first string quarterback, ran out of our second string quarterback, so we had to play a receiver at quarterback yesterday. And so without throwing more than 15 yards, this receiver who can't catch leads Kentucky to overcome a curse that's hung over their heads for 27 years. Unbelievable. And so Rupp Arena erupts over this receiver who can't catch. It was crazy. Here's why. His significance is found in the story that he was just part of. That's all. If you didn't know what happened yesterday afternoon, last night would make no sense at all. If we don't know what happens in the first two-thirds of the Bible, then what happens in the last third makes no sense at all. And if we don't know what happens in the last third, if we don't know what happens in Jesus' life, if we don't know what he was trying to do and accomplish, if we don't know what he has accomplished, 
then our lives are going to make no sense. We're just going to wander around singing cool songs on Sunday mornings, thinking about the fact that, oh, we all kind of believe the same thing, but we don't really know what it necessarily is. And if somebody asks us to defend what it is we believe in, we're lost. So, hopefully I'm preaching to the choir. Let's not be lost. Let's identify ourselves with the story of Jesus. And by doing that, listen, we have to identify with the story he identified with. We have to understand the story of creation. We have to understand the story of Abraham. We have to understand the story of Israel. We have to understand the story of David. And then we can understand who Jesus was, what he was up to, why he did what he did, why he brought to fruition this story that is the story that takes place throughout the Old Testament for the benefit of all mankind and all creation. And if we will place our faith in him, then we can be those who are on mission with him to bring about the redemption of all things. Everything that's been tainted by sin, every relationship that's been broken by sin, everything that's been tarnished by sin, every difficulty, everything that's been ruined by our rebellion against God can be redeemed by the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. And because of his resurrection, we can join him in bringing that about.